Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. So whether you call it friendly fraud or first-party fraud or maybe the newer term first-party misuse, we know that this is a huge pain for businesses. And I've been talking about it the last several weeks. I mean, I've been talking about this issue for years, but especially on the podcast for the last few weeks, because as the economy looks like it's turning into a recession, or maybe we're there, depending on which economist you listen to and which country you're in, whatever we want to call that, a lot of times what ends up happening is, and we saw this in the last pretty significant economic downturn, is that more and more customers are using their own payment method, but are looking for ways to not have to pay for that in the end. So whether that is through chargebacks or through promo code, fraud and abuse, loyalty abuse, refund claim abuse, and fraud. All of those things are impacting e-commerce companies' bottom lines almost sometimes more than hostile payment fraud. But not every company has as good of solution or handle on their first-party fraud as they do their third-party fraud, like stolen credit cards and stolen payment methods. And there are reasons for that, and I'll go into them. But one of the reasons I am talking about this on today's episode is because last week I had the honor of being on a webinar for MRC members, along with my dear friend Uri Arad, who is the co-founder and head of product for Identic. If his name sounds familiar, you may have heard him on episode 31 of Fraudology. That was a year ago, so back in June 2021. If you listened to that episode or if you've had the privilege of working with Uri when he was at PayPal or now that he's at Identic, you know that his mind, I just really enjoy the way Uri thinks about fraud. He really kind of combines his knowledge and experience of data science and the technology piece, as well as his really deep understanding of just payment fraud and abuse within e-commerce. And a lot of that came from his time being head of innovation at PayPal in Tel Aviv for their fraud department. There was a lot more than just a fraud department, so I don't exactly know how to explain it. But they did a lot of things in-house and a lot of them well. And a lot of those things were done because of Uri. So he is just such a great mind. I love to learn from him. And we did this webinar on this topic. So the title was Friendly Fraud 2.0, Mitigating Against Return Claims Fraud, Liar Buyer, and Promo Abuse. The webinar went really well. I mean, Uri and I always have so much info that we want to share. And an hour went by way too quickly. And we were worried about that. But we only had a few minutes for questions and had several thoughtful questions, like more than usual on a webinar. And so I'm very grateful to everyone that listened and really interacted via the questions and provided some great feedback, both on the webinar and then afterwards reaching out to me on LinkedIn. What I learned is that there's so many questions about this and some of them are specific to companies, but I think everyone can learn from them. And so 
towards the end of the webinar when we realized, oh, we're running out of time and we have way more questions than we expected. I just kind of said quickly, I can make this the podcast episode for next Thursday. So Uri and I will take a stab at answering these and then I'll put them on my podcast. So that is what the majority of today's episode is going to be. I'll share a little bit about just the overall conversation that Lee and I had while on the webinar. If you are an MRC member, you can still access that, I believe, in member resources once you log into their website and you can watch the full webinar there. And then I'm going to read some of the questions or actually all of the questions that didn't get answered. And Uri provided some of his answers already to me, so I'll read them and, and let you know what comes from him and then provide some of my thoughts as well. And my thought is always if some people have these questions, a lot of people have these questions. And even if you wouldn't think to ask it, maybe the answer will still be very helpful for you. So that's what I'll be going through on the bulk of today's episode. First, I just wanted to say a couple quick things. For, I mean, honestly, the very biggest thing I want to say is if you did not listen to Tuesday's episode with Eric Bowles and Robert Capps, I don't know what's wrong with you. I'm teasing. But I'm giving you full permission to stop this episode and go back and listen. It's not that the topics are necessarily related or that you can't take everything from this episode without listening to Tuesday's episode. It's not one of those, but I just really enjoyed having the conversation. I think that you all, I know you all will really enjoy the stories and just hearing what they created for StubHub in its heyday, so to speak. I mean, it's still going strong, but really when it first started and marketplaces were still new and we were all just kind of figuring out what fraud we would get in the moment. And we talked to Robert last week and he talked about some of the reasons why he thought it was important to build an investigations department that pursued prosecutions with law enforcement and U.S. district attorneys within the U.S. And they had a little bit of impact externally outside the U.S. as well. And then halfway through the interview, he texted Eric and said, would you be willing to come on Carissa's episode and talk about some of your stories? And by the end, we knew he was coming and that was very exciting. And so there were a couple of questions I didn't ask Robert because I knew it'd be better to talk with him and Eric at the same time. Eric was former Secret Service. Robert hired him and they really built out an investigations department similar to the way that the, the Secret Service did it for StubHub. And it resulted in several arrests. It resulted in some restitution coming back to the company, as well as big headlines, which they will share just how much they saw their fraud dip after those headlines. That to me is the huge payoff. And it's something that I know several companies have either decided not to do or just don't even know how to get started in creating post-transaction investigations. We're putting so many resources at the upfront to prevent fraud, which is critically important because we know from the LexisNexis True Cost of Fraud Survey this year that for every $1 of fraud not prevented, it costs your business $3.60. So critically important to prevent what you can. But it's also important to send a message to the people that just continually keep coming back over and over and over again that you're not just going to take it and that there are consequences for their actions. So maybe I had a couple ulterior motives in wanting them to come on and talk about it, but I also think it's just even if for sure that this isn't something your company can do or anything like that, it's important to know it's possible. And the stories are really enlightening. And it's not often that 
we as an industry get to know who the actual people are who are masterminding those fraud tactics and methods. We can oftentimes pinpoint, okay, all of these orders look like they're coming from the same group for various reasons, but we have no idea what the purpose is or what those funds are really funding. And their stories brought some of that to light. May not have been surprising, but still were really kind of shocking and interesting. I have no doubt that if you listen to that, you really enjoyed it. I'm thinking now I may try to get a few people to just come on and talk about their experiences from a few years ago, because maybe there's a benefit of time passing where there's not as much that you have to keep close to the vest when you're no longer at that company, when that company is in a different life cycle, it's in a different place. So anyway, I think that's one of the reasons why they were able to share so much. And I am grateful to them. And I encourage you guys to reach out if you have any questions or you know, maybe want to talk to them about what it would look like to have them kind of help you and your company build up an investigations department. They are both brilliant in their own ways and love to do this. So even if it's just on the side as a side project, I know they'd really enjoy it. And then lastly, I was just going to mention that if you are hearing this episode because you met me at NRF, welcome. It's kind of funny due to the, at least I think it's funny, due to modern technology. I am both recording this episode and in Cleveland on Thursday, the 23rd. Obviously, I'm recording this a couple of days before and the day before I fly out. But I'll be speaking at NRF Protect on the day this episode comes out, Thursday, the 23rd, on chargebacks, one of my favorite topics, as we know. And I just really enjoy being able to help companies realize that they can take their the chargebacks from a liability to an asset. You can learn a lot from your chargebacks. It's really great business intelligence, not only to understand why your customers are calling their bank for money back and, and all of that, but also to create processes, policies, put something else in place at the upfront to try to prevent these types of chargebacks coming in, whether they are fraud-related chargebacks or not. And I think that for NRF Protect specifically, I'm looking forward to that because I've never been to it. and. It's traditionally focused on in-store loss prevention and asset protection. This year, they invited CardNotPresent.com to provide some sessions on CardNotPresent channel challenges, such as chargebacks and just all buy now, pay later as a payment method and, and a refund fraud and other things like that, because more and more retailers are, are needing that information. And more and more, the lines are getting blurry between channels and between industries. So I'm very much looking forward to seeing a few of my favorite people who are also speaking at this event and meeting a lot of new people. So if you aren't able to attend that conference and you're thinking, oh, maybe I should have, I'll be providing a little bit of a recap on next Thursday's episode of the podcast, similar to what I did for MRC in Vegas and Marketplace Risk in San Francisco in May, just to help highlight some of the frequently talked about topics and, and discussions, both in sessions and out in the floor or in the hallways. And then also in case you are thinking maybe I want to attend next year, then you have a little bit more of a take on it. Lots going on, but I'm sure that is the case in your lives as well. Let's take a minute to listen to a message from our sponsor, and then I will dive into the world of first-party misuse. So as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, this is kind of a part two to the webinar that Uri Arad and I did for MRC last week. But I really think and hope that you can listen to this episode as a standalone. 
There are a lot of questions around promotional code fraud and refund claims abuse and other first party misuse or formerly known as friendly fraud. And so I think it's going to be important, but also you can listen to the webinar from the MRC, which I thought really went well. And I really appreciated all the notes from people that attended. There were about 100 people that attended live and over 200 that registered, which is pretty, pretty big for a Wednesday webinar for MRC. I don't know if they do them every Wednesday, but I know that they do at least a couple a month. And I think that that speaks to the topic as well as I would like to hope that some of you knew that I hope I have a reputation of providing a lot of content in these types of conversations. As well as Uri, like I mentioned, his brain is so, I just really enjoy the way he thinks of things. He thinks of them as how can they be solved from technology perspective and almost like future thinking. Maybe this doesn't exist now, but in the future. And so I think we complement each other well. I can sometimes be more heavy into process and policies. And I mean, I understand technology, obviously, but I'm not technical per se. And whereas Uri is similar, but kind of the opposite. He's stronger even in the technology part than the policy. So we complement each other well. And the basic premise of our webinar conversation was that, and I've said this before on the podcast, in the last recession, friendly fraud really wasn't a word. It wasn't a term. There wasn't, there really wasn't that problem of the true cardholder issuing a chargeback and claiming that they didn't make the purchase or saying, kind of embellishing the circumstances, right? And saying that they didn't get the item or something like that with the sheer purpose of trying to get their money back. Uh, and I think that we can say with fairly big certainty that is going to continue to be an issue even more so over the next year or two as we are in this looming recession where consumers still want those creature comforts. They just may not be able to pay. And it kind of is a varying spectrum between people who at the time they make that purchase, they already know that they're not going to pay for it in the end. They already know that they're going to call their bank and issue a chargeback, or they're going to call customer service for the merchant and claim that it didn't arrive or that it was damaged or that the box was empty. Or they know that they're going to be using so many promotional codes stacked up on top of each other that in the end, they're going to get this product for free. So there's those people who are very intentional at the time. And then there's the buyer's remorse or liar buyer, as some people say, where maybe they got the item, they had every intention of paying their credit card bill. But then when that credit bill, card bill comes, they don't have the money or they want to spend it on something else. And so they, they make a claim. Either way, your company is out the item, the cost of the item that, that you provided or the service, as well as the cost of the transaction. So whether this is intentional or not, whether they're using their credit card or not, this still impacts your bottom line. It's still a revenue retention issue. And I think that that is within the broader scope of online fraud prevention and trust and safety. And while first party misuse via the chargeback system is, is still a thing, and I mean, obviously I'm talking about it at NRF this week and it will continue to be a thing, those losses are expanding by refund claims fraud and promo code abuse and loyalty abuse and fraud and so much more. You know, we're going to answer or I'll answer the questions that we couldn't get to. Uri also did chime in on some of them. So I'll read those when his comments apply or, or differ to mine. I certainly don't want to have us both say the same thing, but I think he had some really good stuff and we just couldn't coordinate a time to record with time zone changes and all this other stuff. I'm really grateful that he provided some of his expertise as well. So the first question someone asked is, is promo fraud really the new friendly fraud? And I think I will say that, at least for me, 
I think it's one of the ways that we are seeing people take advantage of online merchants. And I think it's very clear to say that I don't think that this is a case. We're not talking about the sales that your website puts on where there's an extra code summer 15 or whatever for $15 off or 15% off where it's open to anyone. That, I mean, that's a way of getting business, right? Return business as well as new customers. That is that is fine and good and fine. What we're talking about when we talk about promo code abuse or fraud is this kind of underground of the unique codes that are for specific customers. So whether that is loyalty, you know, you purchased a certain amount and you have a special code for $40 off that might expire in a month. I know I'm part of a couple of loyalty programs like that, right? Where the more I spend, the more I get off and then I get a very specialized promo code that's often a bunch of gibberish that I copy and paste into the checkout and receive that money. Now, those things are, those are codes that often get offered kind of in the underground. I've seen many different groups within Telegram and Discord and Reddit and others where they're not just talking about like the promo code that can save you for free shipping or whatever that is that you might find on a coupon site, so to speak. They're talking about like in mass, they will have stacks and stacks like a hundred, $15 off credits based on loyalty points. A lot of times those are actually stolen via account takeover from consumer accounts and, or they are points that they then put into, they put towards, they cash out for a promo code and then they transfer that to someone else or they just copy and paste the code and sell that to someone else. There's a group on Telegram that's been around for a while where you can get a hundred unique promo codes to a specific retailer for, I think it's like 9% of the cost. I wrote it down somewhere, but I don't remember exactly what that is, but it's significantly cheaper, right? So you can get $15 off at a retailer for about a dollar and then you can stack them. So a lot of times those specialty promotion codes that are just meant for one customer can be applied multiple times. Oftentimes you will see in these groups, people really bragging and posting what they call vouches saying, wow, I was able to shop at this retailer and get all these things for so like for just a couple dollars out of pocket. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about promo code. There's also referral promos where people are creating fake accounts or synthetic accounts, depending on how you're, you have use the terminology. And so you can then create 20 or even 2000 accounts with, especially with bot processing power and create all these accounts to refer each other so that one account gets $20, the other one gets $20, right? When you refer a friend, you get $20 off and they get $20 off. All of those things are created with really good intentions in mind by the marketing department. It's just that there needs to be some checks and balances. And if this isn't an area that you're looking at, we suggest that it be something that you dive into and look at. We talked about a customer of theirs that they've talked to recently about this who never thought this was an issue until they dove into some of their outliers and the data around promotional code usage. And they found this whole group of people that really had netted zero dollars to their company, but had been able to get hundreds, if not thousands of dollars worth of products just from stacking all these types of promotional codes from gaming the system. Um, another thing that's come up on my retailer call before is seeing what they call CSAT promos being abused, and that is customer satisfaction. Whether that's because there's an insider within the retailer that is offering these, or somebody is calling to make a big 
fuss about something just to get $50 off or $100 off or whatever their next purchase for the inconvenience. That's another area that's that's been exploited recently. So I think another, a couple of things from Uri, he said, promo code is expanded by the fact that both first party fraud and third party fraud take advantage of promotions. So you really need to know your metrics to understand where you're going to get hit or where you're getting hit. Interestingly, and we didn't get time to make this point in the webinar, it's often not the same consumers carrying out chargeback fraud as it is promo code abuse. And different consumers, again, might well be going for refund versus promo abuse. So you really need to know your customers and your metrics to see where which customers are a risk for which type of cheating. In many ways, this is a question which is based in identity and a knowledge of a customer's behavior across multiple sites and applications. So I thought all of those were really good points to answer that question of is fraud, promo fraud, the new friendly fraud? I guess just to simplify the answer to that specific question, I don't think it is going to create as much damage or be as big as chargeback fraud, first party, all that. It's certainly not as much refund, but it is really important to be aware of and to talk with other departments. I think there's another question similar on this topic where Uri gives even like really interesting advice too that I'll wait to dive into in a minute. I'm just kind of going through these chronologically as we received them on the webinar. The next question is, is refund prom fraud and promo abuse actually actually growing or are we just getting better at detecting it? That's a really good question and I am interested to hear what you guys have to say about that, what some of the retailers I've worked with have to say about that. I think it's both, but I'll read a little bit of what Uri said. He said, I think whether we're better at detecting them really depends on whether you're looking for them at all. I've heard from merchants even in the last year who were horrified to discover that they had a serious problem that they had simply never noticed because they didn't, they hadn't been looking in the right places. I do think though that there is a shift towards fraud departments actively trying to protect the business more widely, including against refund claims, fraud and promo abuse. And so naturally with that comes improved detection. And then he goes on, actually, I'll go back to that. So I agree with him. I think it's both. I actually don't think, I mean, I don't know. When I first started talking about this, no merchant was looking for it. I think that Different merchants are learning about it in different ways. Sometimes it's because they hear me or someone else talk about it and they start having conversations with customer service and saying, hey, are you seeing an uptick in more inventory not received claims or are we seeing more refunds issued overall? And again, refund claims fraud is not someone who orders an item and returns the item to your warehouse and then gets a refund. That is good business. We want that to happen all day long, especially to prevent chargebacks. We're talking about people who are making refund claims, who receive the item and then say, oh, it didn't come or, oh, it was damaged. The laptop had a leaky battery and I just happen to know that they're not going to ask me to return it. So they're not going to check because it's illegal to put a leaky lithium ion battery in the mail. Things like that, right? So again, this is kind of a way of cheating the system. I would say that these types of these methods have been around forever. There's always been a couple outliers who would claim that they didn't receive an item, but it would often be on their same accounts. It would often be just the same person. It wasn't scalable. Now, because of refund fraud as a service, and I've talked about this on other episodes, so I'm not going to go too far down this rabbit hole, because it's easy to hire somebody to do it for you and who really understands each retailer and what claims work, what the dollar limit is before they have to get a manager involved, just all of those things, it is growing. It's been growing significantly, especially since COVID. It started on Amazon even like six, five, six years ago, but it's kind of now across the board. And 
As far as the activity I look at on Telegram and Discord and other platforms as well, where these fraudsters are just talking openly because they can and they don't need a Tor browser or an onion router or anything like that to get on the dark web. I don't think this is slowing down at all. I think the only time it's going to slow down is if you put any resistance in play. And those are things I've talked about in the past and that I'm working on with a client that I'm pretty excited to talk about that product at some point down the road. It just means I'm a little bit more busy than usual, but in the fun way. But I think that it's the answer is both, but it is definitely growing. It is becoming harder to and just more inconvenient for consumers to issue chargebacks when they realize that I can just call the company and ask for my money back and they'll give it to me right away. I don't have to wait the 30 days or I don't have to not know if they're going to fight the chargeback and lose the money or anything like that. So we're seeing this shift in behavior. I think it's generational. I think it's it has a lot to do with the fact that there are legitimate issues for refund claims. There are a lot of supply chain issues that are causing delays in shipping, and it's easier to hide that way. And it's an area that fraud departments haven't really cracked down on before. We haven't had a lot of visibility into that because we haven't had to. But now that people are creating tons of fake accounts and really gaming the system and we're not seeing just a little bit of this behavior on the same accounts, we're seeing this across all these newer accounts, looks and feels like it's continuing to grow. And, and it really is like friendly fraud 2.0. And we're going to continue to see that with the recession and the economic downturn, like I mentioned before. Udi adds, in the EU especially, there's a PSD2-driven impact. But of course, the fraudsters just shift their activities. So between that and the financial uncertainty from the pandemic and now the economic downturn, it's not surprising that we're seeing this increase. I thought he made a really good point, and I've heard this from one other person in Europe as well, that with the added security on payment fraud, the added complexity in Europe with PSD2 and SCA, the Security Consumer Authentication, is that what it's called? Yeah. If we forget all of the acronyms, I'm sorry. They having more reliance on 3D Secure and others in Europe and UK and a few other places, but they're having to, criminal fraudsters are having to find new ways to take advantage of companies. And one of those ways is through refund fraud. It's not somewhere where we've traditionally had a lot of presence from the fraud team. And so it, it has been wide open for a long time. I do think that more retailers are starting to measure it more, but that doesn't mean that it's not growing rapidly as well for many reasons. Okay, so the next question is commenting on disputing chargebacks. And this is probably something I said in the webinar as far as responding to chargebacks that are you know not evidence of payment fraud or hostile fraud. And that's a really good best practice. So this merchant asks, our company disputes all chargebacks and have had some success with the banks, but we're still thinking we're losing more money than we should. Thoughts? My first answer is, yeah, you probably are. But I mean, it's hard to know without diving into details. Udi had a couple points. He also said he's going to defer to me a little bit on the chargeback thing. I'll go first and fill in what he added. I could do an entire episode on any of these topics, and, and maybe I will in the future. I think I've talked about this before in a past episode, but some of the best practices around chargebacks, one of them is not to respond to every chargeback that you receive. There is a chunk of your chargebacks and it varies per company and, and what processes and technology you have in place and other factors on how big of a chunk this is. But there will be a chunk of your chargebacks where you should not be responding. They are legitimate chargebacks. Someone's credit card was stolen and used on your website or they were told the item was red and it really showed up orange or whatever that was, right? There was maybe their credit card was accidentally charged twice because there was some redundancy in the billing system. 
Those things, if they're legitimate chargebacks, you should absolutely be accepting those chargebacks. It used to be that you just wouldn't respond to them, but especially with Visa's online resolution tool, they ask that you are responding that you're not going to challenge that so that they can give the money back to the cardholder even faster. And there's other reasons why that's important. I mean, I guess the first one that should be clear is what if you did win one of those chargebacks? That would be one heck of a tweet, right? My credit card was stolen and used at X. I've called my bank and issued a chargeback to get my money back. And now that merchant disputed it and they're keeping my money. And that would not be good. Now, that doesn't happen very often, but that is one thing that you need to consider. The other issues are kind of more strategy based. And again, I'm going to try hard not to geek out too hard on this topic because there are a few more questions to get to. But when you respond to all chargebacks, your processor, it's their job to look at what you have responded based on the reason code and other factors and decide if it's worth sending to the issuer. If you've won that first chargeback, that usually means, yep, your processor believes that you have a chance and they're sending it on to the issuer. Now, if you get a second time chargeback, that usually means the issuer looked at it and didn't think you had enough evidence. But just going back to the first phase, your first audience is your payment processor. It's a chargeback analyst working for your payment processor that probably has hundreds of chargebacks to go through in one day. They, like everyone else, have KPIs and, and one of them is around how many they can process in a day. They're looking very quickly for what they need per that reason code. And if they can't find it quickly or they won't respond to it, if you're responding to everything. They don't know then what should be fought, right? Because they all look alike. There are some chargeback providers that just provide the same documentation for every single reason code for every single chargeback. Their kind of their strategy or the way they do this is just we'll throw everything up against the wall and see what sticks. I've done some with clients of mine who have responded to all chargebacks. I've gone in and provided training on on why this is actually harms them. And when we start to selectively respond to chargebacks and only respond to the ones where they genuinely should receive the money back. Always, like, I'm trying to think if there ever was a situation where their win rate didn't go up. Now, obviously, you're changing that numerator and denominator. You're not responding to all chargebacks. You're responding to just the ones that you respond to. So you want to change that ratio. But even with changing those numbers, so you kind of have apples to apples. So if you responded to 200 chargebacks last month and those were all your chargebacks, and you only receive the funds on 25% of those. That's, you know, 50 chargebacks that you won, right? So that's 25% win rate, just for simplification's sake. If next month you only respond to 100 because those 100 chargebacks, you should have been charged or you should have received the money, the cardholder should have been charged. Then you're going to look at how many did we win? We won 50. Just say we won 50 out of those 100. Now your win rate is 50%. You're not saying, okay, there were 200 total chargebacks, so I'm taking 50 and that's still 25%. I hope that makes sense without a whiteboard, without showing that on a whiteboard. But always been the case. And also it strengthens their relationship with the processor. It helps them to be able to contact their processor and say, hey, what else can we provide you? Otherwise, the processor is going to say, stop sending me this garbage. That's the first thing I want you to do. The other reason why it's not good to respond to all chargebacks is that if you have a chargeback fee, you're actually creating more fees for your company. Because if you're responding to chargebacks where it's not valid for you to get that money back, you're going to receive a second time chargeback. You're going to receive a second fee on that chargeback rather than just saying, you know what, we accept it. And we're just going to put all of our focus on the ones that we think we can win. It's also 
an exhausted effort. Like, I hope I've given you guys enough reasons for this. In the chargeback presentation I'm doing this week for NRF, I have three big chargeback myths, and that's one of them. It's never a good idea to respond to all chargebacks, and I can actually provide even more reasons, but those are the main ones. Some of the things that Uri recommended as far as best practices, one, it's sometimes better to only dispute the chargeback you're the first party versus to be the person who used their credit card, right? So like, Okay, these ones, it looks like someone else used their credit card. We're going to accept those chargebacks. These ones over here, the real card holder used their credit card. We're going to fight those. He said, I know Carice will bear me on this, but disputing all of them just leads to banks to ignore you after a while. Whereas if you're judicious about disputing clearly first party fraud only, then they'll take you more seriously. Look at compelling evidence you send. You may have an opportunity to enhance it with stronger evidence. I especially agree there. The order of the evidence in your documentation is important, as well as verify that you're providing the correct evidence per reason code. Like I mentioned before, at least one, actually, I think there's two or three chargeback providers that just respond with the same blanket template for every single reason code. But if you look at the card brand rules and regulations for chargeback reason or for chargebacks, there are different requirements for different reason codes. When it's a fraud coded chargeback, your job is to prove that the cardholder made the transaction. If somebody's saying they didn't get the item, your job is to show that they got the item. If someone's saying that they canceled their subscription, you need to say, no, actually you didn't cancel your subscription. Like, so you can't use the same blanket and also having those pieces of evidence in order of importance to the banks is also very important. That's something I've been one of the not so secret secrets about my magical templates, as some of my clients have called them, is being able to kind of understand what's most important and putting them in order and having different templates for different reason codes and different scenarios within those reason codes, because sometimes there's more than one use case and you're proving or you're sharing something different than the other. Or maybe you don't have all the evidence, so you're going to reprioritize it. There's, again, I knew it was, there was a risk for me to get in the weeds. I'm sorry, but hopefully it's interesting. And then finally, Uri adds, not all issuers are the same. It may be worth looking into customizing your response per issuer. I know this can be time consuming, but can pay off. And then he adds an expert, Carice, can help speed and smooth the process. Very sweet, Uri. I would also add that not all processors are the same either. There are some processors that have, that prefer that you apply VFX versus via their portal. There are others that have a certain format, right? They want a cover letter, others don't. So really finding out what processors you use what they prefer is really important as well as the issuers. I have seen some people do this very well. I think I'm pretty good at that. I know processors better than issuers, but I know of at least one chargeback provider that does a really good job at customizing their responses to the issuer as well as to the processor. They've just had a lot more time and a lot more data to be able to do that in a more streamlined way than I can. But I certainly have picked up a few things here or there, and I have some pretty big wins under my belt as far as pretty big, I don't know, metrics about some of the merchants I've worked with in providing a significant increase in win rates. And again, we're calculating win rate by not receiving a second time chargeback, not that the first time came back. Okay, I need to try to get through these questions faster. Um, the next one is, what about the role of regulations like Reg E and Reg Z, particularly in the U.S., that aid some of this behavior? So I'm not a legal expert, and Uri also said that in his responses. But here's my understanding of those regulations. I mean, the basic part is that neither of those really pertain to e-commerce or marketplaces. Regulation E applies to any financial institution that debits or credits funds to or from a consumer's account. So that may apply to some consumer-focused fintechs, but not 
necessarily e-commerce and marketplaces. And then regulation Z is for the credit industry for their practices. And that's the relationship between a credit issuer and the consumer. The merchant, the party where the credit is used is not as applicable there. Now, if your company has private label credit cards, or lines of credit, or is providing their own BNPL, you may have to abide by Reg Z. But my understanding is we really don't have regulations within e-commerce and credit in the same way that banks and financial institutions and fintechs do. I don't think it really does apply. So Uri also says, definitely not a justification for stealing from a retailer by pretending that you never ordered an item in order to avoid paying for it, or by pretending that an item never arrived when it's sitting in your living room right now. These regulations are there to protect consumers in the U.S. and they're important, but they don't protect people from essentially stealing from e-commerce companies. They may be using their own credit card, but that doesn't mean that they're not still taking the item and you never got paid for it. Okay, here's another question on promo code abuse. And in hindsight, I probably should have answered this one at the same time as the other one. So I apologize, but just reading them in order. Is promo abuse okay when it's built into the business case for the marketing activity from the outset? It's a really good question. And I think I explained a little bit of it, but Woody does a good job of saying this as well. So here's what he said. Here's how I think of this. When the marketing team wants to give everyone a discount coupon, they do it. That's fine. And if some particularly enthusiastic customers cheat a bit to get more of the brand that they love at a discount, that isn't a disaster for the business either. That's definitely built into the business case. But when they want to offer a promo to new customers only, we would like it to go to new customers. The whole business ought to want that. So if you have a customer acquisition strategy where everyone who opens a new account gets $10 like PayPal did, the business is expecting that to result in new customers, not to provide free money to people who are just trying to take advantage of that. Of course, there is always a balancing act. The same way we don't expect just to stop all transaction fraud, we also expect that some promo abuse will happen. But we have to place controls in place to make sure it remains a small and manageable amount. He goes on, but this is really, I think I highlighted all of this because I thought it was really good. There are two reasons this doesn't always happen. The fraud fighters can help with both of them. First, it's not always really considered upfront by whoever is running the promotion. Fraud departments can help raise awareness there. So it's not always considered, oh, we might have people take advantage of this. So that's where you can help educate your business. Second, it's exacerbated because the team running the promotion is often looking at the wrong metric. Instead of looking at how many new accounts you signed up with the promotion code, look at how many of those accounts are still using your service in three months. Don't look at how many accounts took that discount. Check how many increased their engagement with your business. So quality over quantity. And this is something that you can pull reporting on and then help show present it to marketing and not say, hey, you have a fraud problem and you need us, but I have heard from the industry that this is somewhere where people are taking advantage of companies, especially now as we've tightened up some of our payment fraud controls and technology. We ran a report just to see if this was happening here, and we wanted to know if this is something that might be helpful to you or if you knew this was happening. And if you can provide the lifetime customer spend per account after those initial promotions, that can tell a very different story than what they're looking at at the top line, right? Because a lot of marketing departments are just looking at the activity up until the checkout and up until the shopping cart and not after. It's our job to say this is what actually ended up happening. 
and just use it as useful information and, and helpful. And if they don't pair, they don't pair. But maybe keep track of that so that that's an area that if someone in the business comes to you and says, hey, we feel like we need to save money or we need to recover more money, you can say, well, I would suggest making this change and that change so that these promotions can't be misused. Maybe we do more identity verification top of funnel to ensure that there's not a whole bunch of fake accounts creating accounts just for the sake of new customer acquisition promotion codes. So then also that's the context in which you need to view promo abuse. This is from Uri again. Otherwise, the promotion might be hurting your business way, way more than it's helping it. I think fraud departments can play a really important role in educating their business about this context, showing they see the whole picture and that they are on the side of growth as long as it's healthy long-term success. I think that's very well said. And I also put down here like that the real issue is stacking promotions, loyalty promos, birthday promotions. I think, don't think she said on the podcast, but Diana has said this on a public webinar before that there was someone that she called birthday boy, where he went in and they provided a promo for your birthday week to spend money on their site. And he went in and created 52 accounts so that every week was his birthday week. And the way she found it was just looking at transactions with promo codes and looking at the dollar amount and seeing how can anyone only spend $5 on our website? Like our average ticket is almost $100. And then looking in a little bit more detail and realizing that he was stacking birthday promotions and that he created all these accounts, but they were connected by different things and bringing that to the attention. Hey, this is just one person, or maybe this is a thousand people, or maybe they told people when they posted it somewhere and now it's 10,000 people. The number matters, the amount of money lost matters. And again, the whole context of the customer spend matters. Because if they're coming in, creating five different accounts with five different referral promos, but then all of those accounts go on to spend good money and have no chargebacks and no refund claims. There's nothing wrong with that, right? So it's the big picture context that's important. I talked about the CSAT, the customer satisfaction promos. They've been way up for a few retailers when they actually dove into this. Okay, so I'm just looking at the other questions. There's two more questions here. One is on freight forwarders and one is on buy now, pay later and setting up their payment processing to help with preventing some people not understanding where they made the purchase. I'm going to tackle those on next week's episode. Those I want to be able to be fair to those and, and give them some time. And I feel like this episode has already gone a little bit longer than I planned. What else is new? But I did want to thank everyone who enjoyed it. There were a couple of really sweet comments within the question and answer. Just someone else said, let's do this again. It's awesome. Wonderful information. Thank you. And then someone wrote thank you with like seven U's at the end. So thank you. <laughs> And you're welcome. This is something that I really enjoy doing. I know Uri does as well. Um, Identic is big on education, as are other companies that I am privileged to work with, including our sponsor, Sion. You know, I think they're really all trying to provide information that isn't just salesy, right? It doesn't have a pitch at the end. It doesn't say this is your problem, but if you buy our solution, you'll fix it. I mean, you may actually be able to really fix a problem by implementing one of these solutions, but they're also just wanting to contribute to the industry by providing really good information. And something that solution providers have in common with me in a way is being able to work with a lot of different merchants and being able to learn from a 10,000 foot view a little bit more than when you are on the ground. So I do think that there are really important lessons to learn from everyone. But with that, I'm going to call it a day. I have a flight to get ready for. And thankfully, I finished my presentation. 
happening. Maybe possibly a few weeks later than they wanted it, but it is done. So I hope that you all are having a really good week and that you have fun vacation and holiday plans booked for soon or right now. And I also, one plug, if you're still listening to this, this next Tuesday's interview is so good, especially if you struggle with online gift card fraud, which if you sell online gift cards, you probably do. I I think you guys will really be in for a treat with that as well. So as always, thank you so much for listening and all of your great support. And I look forward to speak with you more next week. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.